<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-host S with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Oh, I'm unwell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's just, I guess it's that time again. Uh, I just, I had this a month ago. I'm over it. Um, but uh, this is just trying to get a lot of things done in a small amount of time. And the great news is we record a couple of episodes very close together. So if you're not happy with how I sound in this one, <laughs> you won't like the next one either. <laughs> That's where I'm at. I think you sound remarkably good. But I will also say yeah. this. I also sound remarkably good. I've been sick for going on. I'm, I'm on my third week. Yeah. I'm in week three. Now, granted, Aren't my voice is back. There was a couple days it just yes. went. And that's always yeah. alarming. Yes. When you we did a record and then the next morning you were like, I have no voice. Thank yep. God we did that yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I've had to seek medical help. I needed a <laughs> prescription from science. Um yeah. and I know that, listen, I know certainly in Canada, no, I think it happens here too. Doctors don't like to give out the antibiotics because there was that craze where everyone was getting antibiotics all the time and then people sure. were getting resistant to them and everything. I haven't been on antibiotics in years, years and years sure. and years. And this time he was like, oh, God, you need these. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe, so again, maybe it's and then just the test, my doctor. What's that? It was just, maybe it's just my doctor because if I go and then he's like, you need a pill for that? And really? I'm just like. Wow. Okay. He's an older gentleman. I, I'm one day I know that I'm going to call there and they're going to go, Oh, he retired <laughs> because I don't go there very often. So, um, I'm anticipating that. Yeah. But. I just saw a TikTok actually last night and it was Perry Farrell 
of sure. course, from porno for Pyro's fame. And his girlfriend at the time, and it must have been in the 90s, it looked like, but it was basically like a video video footage of them at a, as described in the video, quack doctor. And they were ordering pills. And they were like, well, we need 60 of these, and we need 80 of these. They were asking for specific dosages. Then they were like, oh, you know what we really liked was that liquid Valium. <laughs> they were like, wow. oh, but we're out of syringes. He's like, I'll get you some of those. No problem. You want these? How many of those? Is this enough? And I was like, that's wild. I mean, I don't think a lot of doctors do that anymore. Other than maybe the doctor who may or may not have led to Michael Jackson's death. There is that. Yeah. Um, My doctor is not that level. I'll yeah. say that. It's just he's very quick to, if I'm like, oh, this sore throat, whatever, then he'll be like, we should put you, we should put you on something. Well, he may also be hedging the bets because you got three kids and chances are <laughs> yeah, you've gotten something yeah. else. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's always possible. I mean, good Lord, that man was there for at least two of those kids coming out. He assisted in one of the surgeries. Assisted? Yeah, because he's not a surgeon. So that's the pro that's problematic. That was the moment where I was like, wait. What? Because, of course, I'm awake. Right. The whole time, which is a horror show, yeah, I, can't. I might add. I can't. Because they've got the big mm -mm. sheet mm -mm. that's attached to the ceiling with my husband at my head. Uh, and I just kept, like, I spent the entire surgery just looking at him and going, don't look past the sheet. <laughs> don't look past the sheet. Promise you won't look past the sheet. If you look past the sheet, you'll never touch me sexually again. That was my concern. Well, he's going to see like, because they have to like, take some stuff out, put it to the side and then rip the baby out of your loins. And then you somehow do it again. Well, I will say it's not necessarily yeah. being ripped from your loins. Aren't your loins sure. your thighs? I think that it's being ripped You're right. just straight from the abdomen. But yes, yeah. it's troubling the whole process of them, which listen, I want to preface this by saying this is not a judgment. Get a sure. C-section. If you want to plan your birth and you want it to be a C-section, God bless. This is not a judgment. What sure. I'll say is it wasn't until I was far too old, like in the past couple of years, that I really learned about the process of what it is. I'm the dum-dum that went, they cut the belly baby right there and pops out. Like <laughs> I forgot like oh. human anatomy means, oh no, it's behind your other organs. Like they have to yeah. move those. Um, <clears throat> so yeah. when I say, yeah, it's a horror show. It's not meant uh, that you're a horror show for having one, no. or that anyone is. It's more just that it's like, it feels impossible. The whole process is a horror show. Yeah. like Especially just, when all they say to you very calmly is, you're going to feel some pressure. Pressure. Oh, yeah. No thanks. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, hey, the first one, that was an emergency. That was not planned. The second one, I went, I am never going through labor again. That was horrific. Please. Yes. You've already done it once. Cut it out of my body. It's fine. Of course. Uh, and then I went into labor two hours before my surgery was scheduled. So I got labor anyway. Oh. Um, that uh, that kid really pushed it. Uh, and then the third one, it was the doctor was just like, we're already here. We've already done this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's just go for it. And it just was what it was. Yeah. But, it's but yeah, it was, it was, I, it was I bad. It's, it's also interesting that like, your doctor was like, oh, I wanted to assist in the surgery. Because part of what that feels like is, I wanted to see your insides. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and 
not that I'm saying that all doctors are creeps. Sure. I'm not. I think <laughs> well, this is... What? Is it? Is he a creep? Not that I'm aware oh. of. But if he was, I wouldn't go to him. But um, he's already inspected me through two holes of my body. He had to inspect through the third that they've made for themselves. Oh, are you seeing he's seen up? <laughs> he's my doctor, doctor. Like, he's my... Sure. I'm just saying two to other holes. Oh, this hole. I meant my mouth. I I've, meant I've never had a, a doctor look in my butt. <laughs> Oh, you had a colonoscopy. I didn't know. I have not. No, so sorry. I meant uh, like usually he looks in my throat because nine times out of ten, the only reason I go there is because I'm course. so sick that my husband has just been like, "You've been sick too long. Please, for the love of God, go get medicine." Yeah. Uh, but then also he has uh, he does my exams. Of so course. He's seen so he's seen <laughs> south mouth. <laughs> What's wrong with me that you say two holes and I don't even, it takes me like a full two minutes to get to mouth. That's really. What's wrong with me that I so quickly said south mouth as though that's what we call it. Oh my God. South uh, mouth. I mean, this I is did, where we're at. I did try desperately in the episode of Superstore where I'm talking about taking a a whore's bath or whatever. Yes. Again, we use this term. I'm not, this is not my term. That was also many years ago. I, I don't know if we use that word or not anymore. I'm just saying, please don't come for me. Um, uh, but I'm talking about that and it was like, you know, I just washed the major stink zones like pits and then I can't remember what the line is. It's whatever is in the show. But I, in every take until they forced me not to, kept saying, you know, the major stink zones. P pits, butt, front butt. That's amazing. <laughs> Which I thought was the funniest bit ever. And they were just like, you can't call it a front butt. And I was like, but I have one and you don't, man. How dare you? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You let us name our parts the way we want to. We can do what we want. Yes. We can say what we like. Um, yes. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, that's the joke is that I I was like, uh, I think it said vag. I think it was what, what was in there. But anyway, sure. um, all of us to say south mouth it is from now on. <laughs> From now on. Uh, I'm also, this is just like making me clue in. Um, he, the doctor did not assist in the second, in the, in the second surgery that I had uh, for the second child. But again, because he's not a surgeon. Yeah. And I, I assume he was doing other things, but he did the third time. And I, part of me one always was just like, the guy needed a hand. He was the only doctor available. Whatever. But now I'm like, the, the, I had the same main surgeon for kids two and three. During the second one, uh, the first one that this guy had done, he cut too closely into the womb and my son came out with a scar on his head. Yeah. So it's the whole thing like, your, everyone's first scar is their belly button or whatever that nonsense is. No, my son has it like up in his hairline. He has a scar in his head. So when everyone was like seeing the baby, they were like, why are there band-aids on the baby's head? And I was like, well, the, the surgeon did cut too far in and nicked him. Yeah. And thank God it was like up in the head. Thank, I can't even think of otherwise. Ugh. And I just want to say to all of our American listeners, in Canada, yeah. we don't sue, okay? I know yeah. that here you sue for everything. And yep. that's your prerogative. It's your God-given right. God bless you. Yep. Um, it's just a different, it's just different up there. 
I almost yeah. lost an eye as a child, legitimately. We went to Mountain Cat World. Right. Now defunct. And there was a box of mountain lion cubs. And I leaned down as a little toddler, leaned down, and one scratched me. And it was right at the side of my eye, like, like a millimeter over. And we would have been into... Well, God, I would yeah. be booking a lot of pirate roles if I was still an actress. Um, I could have lost an eye is my point. And then I yeah. tell people this story. When I tell Americans this story, they're like, well, did your mother sue them? And I was like, no, it's just, we just don't. It's just not as, it's not as much of a, a part of our culture, <laughs> which yes. again is I, not to say that suing doesn't happen. It does. But you know what I mean? It's just sure. not as like prevalent. Yes. And yeah. look, if if it had some way disfigured my child. Of course. We yes. probably would have been in another thing. Yes. But I was also in another world, having uh, just gone through a very, very major surgery. Uh, but there is a part of me that is like, my doctor knows about it. It's in the files. Was he like, maybe I'll be there this time. Oh, you know what? Keep That's an eye nice. out. So that is possible. Um, also, for the Americans listening, I'm going to say, I went into that hospital. I had that very major surgery. I had to stay probably three, four days and then went home. It it didn't cost me anything. Not a dime. I did not pay for that. This is how we work up here. Yeah. Um. I didn't. I don't have thousands and thousands of dollars of bills. So which to, to I'm not bragging. I'm just saying for the point of you may be like, how did you not sue for that? It's like, well, I also didn't have to turn around and pay him money for having done that. Exactly. And it, that's what it also can make the difference here, where it's like, if you're going to have yes. to pay $30,000 for that surgery, then it's like, yes. uh, no, we're, we're not doing that. Um, yeah. You're like going to have to pay sir. Yeah. Mr. Blade, or should I call you Dr. Blade? That's amazing. I do have to give a shout out to a friend of the podcast, Leslie Seiler. We were doing an improv scene once. This was years ago. It stuck with me forever. <laughs> and I, we were playing doctors in the scene, and it was like, uh, somebody was like, what's your name? And she was like, you know, Dr. So-and-so, but I prefer Blade. And it just slayed me. Like it was, it broke me on stage. It was like the concept of a surgeon insisting on being called Blade just really made me laugh. I um, like that a lot. Yeah. I wonder if that surgeon was a surgeon or just helping out. Again, I need to believe he was just looking out for me. That That's nice. That that's second, nice. the surgeon did at my last appointment with him be like, well... You know, I guess we'll be seeing you. And I went, no. <laughs> yeah. He specifically like, this is what he does is deals with babies and taking them out of your body. He knew it was my last one. He tied things up in there while he was in to make sure I'd never do it again. My choice wasn't his choice. Yep. Uh, but uh, it was like, sir, you know, we're yeah. done here. You're lucky I came back. I, uh, we didn't have choices. Yeah. But to be clear, you can choose yeah. your doctor in Canada because there's a lot yes. of, of incorrect misinformation in the States that it's like, well, you don't get to choose your doctor. No. It's, it's far more nuanced than that because it can do with town size. It can do with a bunch of other things that yes. you may not have access to more options. As opposed Correct. to you just get told that this is your doctor and that's it. It doesn't work. Oh, yeah. You absolutely pick. Um, I'm not sure how I ended up with the one that's my regular doctor. I don't know. He seemed nice, I guess, at the time when I first met him. And then I was like, I guess this is who we're using. Yeah. Uh, and then the surgeon, he was the only one that we could get um, for that specific time frame. And you know what? Third kid came out pristine. There you so go. So there you go. 
And look, it was one of those, it could happen to anybody. I just feel like the baby was way closer than he realized or whatever. But yeah, the child doesn't know it. But if you, but if you ever ask him, it's like a war injury. He's always like, <laughs> he brings it up in the way of like, oh, like my scar. And I'm like, will you? Stop it. Nobody knows it's there. He has like a little cowlick in his hair. So you'd think that's where it is. No, it's on the other side. It's hidden in his hair. You cannot see it. You'd never know it. You'd never know it. But he's, but he always says it with that tone of my scar, like as though he remembers and he's seen things. He does not remember. I ask him from stuff from last week. He doesn't remember. God bless it. I know. That reminds me though. I did date somebody once who had a really large scar down sure. his whole face. Right. And I never asked, because why would you? I don't know. For me, I'm just like, if he wants to tell me at some point, I'm sure he will. He'll tell you. He'll of tell course. me. But like, it's no big deal. I, you know, Whatever. But it was significant. Turns out, uh, forceps. He was much older than me. Uh, and they were pulling babies out that way. And they, oh. yeah. Yeah. Oh, then you sue. That's a sue. Oh, yeah. And in Canada, we would sue. We would sue over a complete facial deformity. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, boy. But, you know, I just want to. What I I like is how horrifying we have made any pregnant person right now that's like, I. I was. Oh, they've skipped ahead. Yeah. They've skipped ahead. (laughs) Look. Look, they've the, skipped ahead. They're, they're like, let's get past this. Let's get to the case. We're not. Yeah. 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 The, the kids are all out. They're all healthy and just fine. Yeah. I still have some traumas, but that's the point yeah, but, of know, motherhood is you could to have, have that anywhere. Traumas. I also just want to yeah. say I clearly have traumas because when you said um, my doctor just showed up at the, thir- the third one. You went on to later explain, I think he was maybe kind of wanting to just be present because there had been an issue the second time. Where do I go? Oh, he wanted to see your insides. What's wrong with me? And then I was like, why wouldn't he? He's already seen every part of me. Like, gross. (laughs) (laughs) He's already seen me from the inside. I don't don't know how hot he finds a liver. Like, I don't know. I don't know if he saw my liver. I don't know. All I know is I could feel the sensation of things being moved out of my body like someone fiddling with a pound of ground beef. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's been a while since I've like gotten to tears from crying on this sh- from laughing on this show. I think it's just like, what, what a couple of creeps. <laughs> <laughs> Me going there yeah. to begin with. He clearly <laughs> wanted to see her inside. And then you, you yes, and he's every other part of me. <laughs> oh my and that's God. something. He it's is just, like. It just really tickled me. He is oh, a we very... crossed over into like weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we 100% are. He's like a very uh, sweet. Elderly gentleman in his 60s, very religious. <laughs> so is Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Actually, I can't speak to the religion, but anyway. Well, I will say uh, Hannibal Lecter, to the best of my knowledge, has not seen my South Mouth. <laughs> Oh, what a 
journey. I can't. Oh my god. What a journey. Oh, fuck that laugh. Oh, great. Oh, like I said, it's been a while since I've laughed to tears on this show, but God, it's yep. welcome. Oh, I will be that this is one of those interchanges though. <laughs> that I will be for the rest of the day, probably the week. And I'll be alone. I'll be alone in my home, no one around, and then just you'll just hear me go. <laughs> like it'll make me laugh just thinking about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He probably was a zero insects. He's seen every other part. <laughs> Yeah, Just look, the we... creep cousin. <laughs> oh, that'll be the name of our next podcast. Creepy cousins. Creep I cousins. also, uh, I know you don't want to hear this. Yeah. I wouldn't hate a shirt that said, just a couple of creeps. Just a couple of creeps. <laughs> oh, I can do that. I can do that. With uh, just a picture of us. I but it also has also, to be... When did we turn? <laughs> when did we Today, from, apparently. Like, very, very sweet children. To just a couple of creeps. Just a couple of creeps. Well, I am almost 40, so maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe once oh my we, God. we cross over. But I also want you is, to know. is the tipping point. On this on this shirt, it's not going to be a couple of creeps. It's going to be a couple, couple of. Apo- oh, I thought you were just going a couple O apostrophe. Oh, a couple of O creeps. Like That works too. But couple for me, creeps. I hear it as just a couple of creeps. Yeah. C-O-U-P-L-A. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Couple of creeps. Oh fuck, that was delicious. Okay, well, look, let's get into it. We can't top it, and and also maybe stand down. We've already gotten to like, you know, we had said something in the first five minutes that in my mind I was like, oh my god, we've gotten so quickly to something so so extreme. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember what it was now because it's been completely steamrolled for me by the last interchange. Again, getting into graphic detail about <laughs> cesarean. <laughs> from there on out oh. may i point out last episode <laughs> it took six minutes and 37 seconds on my timer for you to ask which mcdonald's <laughs> land character would i have sex with <laughs> so apparently like five minutes is our <laughs> once we hit that then it's just who knows what's All gonna happen all yeah. bets are off. I think yeah. that that proves that I've been I've been creep adjacent at least for some time. Because <laughs> I think maybe my transition into creep probably started when I asked you about which of the Muppets you date in earnest. It, you know what? That was a baby step. That was a toe was. in the creep water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Creep creek. <gasps> creep creek. Creep creek. That sounds like... Come take a ride on Creep Creek. <laughs> oh my God, we need our own amusement park. That's really... Instead oh, of yeah. Jungle Cruise, it's cr- the Creep Creek. Creep Creek. And it's like, it can be one of those boat rides, like Splash Mountain. Yes. But, but except there the will vignettes be... vignettes before we get there is something real creepy, but not not spooky creepy, but just creepy. Like, it's like a doctor <laughs> watching us. A... <laughs> A surgery and just jerking it. <laughs> I like that. I had a different concept for Creep Creek where I just thought as you're chugging along in the boat, suddenly uh, pictures would pop up of like famous people and you won't get to go beyond it until you say smash or pass. <laughs> Yours is a better, more, probably more sustainable idea. <laughs> well, it's 
it's a slightly more family-friendly park than your idea. <laughs> slightly. But it's an important step. But I also just want you to know the only things you can eat in that park, there are either McDonald's or 7-Elevens. Nothing else. Hope you I'll enjoy. take, um, uh, what's the South Mouth? <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be a bowl of clams. <laughs> it's just a bowl of clams. No one orders it. It's never ordered. We gotta order for a South Mouth. Get the clams. <laughs> it's a, just a sack of clams. <laughs> <laughs> oh this you know what i don't know if it's the time of day again i'm trying to blame the time of day always uh i don't know if it's uh we recorded stuff yesterday so we're like mentally in another place or what it is but i think i think we've hit magic you know, honestly, I agree. And never in my life did I think the magic would come when I would say the words, a doctor's watching his surgery, just jerking it. But uh, here we are. But what's amazing also is that, and listen, we'll get into it two seconds, but just for context. Yeah. We are in a stretch of like, we have to bank some episodes because yep. we have, our schedules are cuckoo bananas. Um, yep. In February and March, actually. So we've got to get ahead at yep. the point. So we're on day two of three. So dear yep. listeners, if you aren't convinced, make sure to check out next week's episode because it's going to be yep. recorded 24 hours or 36 hours after this. So if we thought yeah. this was nutty, not to set it up, but I don't even know what's oh, going to come out tomorrow. I have concerns because I'm also still writing that one. Um that one, this is this this has been a challenge, um, and the true joke is it's us trying to get ahead, but we're not getting yep. ahead. Yep. Um, but it's trying to do three full episodes in two weeks. Yeah. Plus, we're recording <coughs> our bonus episodes for Patreon. Um. So. Yeah. And what yeah. I, also, I do feel like I just need to tease very quickly. Yeah. For our patrons, I had prepared no let's take a step back i had compiled some information for a last call episode yeah but i was like i don't physically have time like every minute of the next 10 days no two weeks every minute is mm -hmm. accounted for and i'm not being dramatic like it literally is like i slotted in absolutely everything that i'm doing i just don't have time but we'll need to record that episode so yesterday I was talking to Christy and I was like, look, there's no other choice. I have to get blind drunk and explain a documentary to you. It, that way there's less prep for me. I just have to start drinking an hour before and get raging drunk. Um, <clears throat> an homage basically to like drunk history, uh, essentially, yeah. which was a fabulous show. So anyway, um, that's just a little teaser for uh, people on Patreon. And for those who are on the fence, if you'd like to hear this creep get super fucking trashed and then explain a documentary <laughs> uh, to that creep over there, patreon.com slash cocktails. I can't think of a better ad. <laughs> I, I, I like that you're trying to entice them over by being like, we are creeps. Go on over. And I, you know, <laughs> you know the song that plays, obviously, on Creep Creek. Creep, creep. <laughs> I was going to say, it's just a loop of creep by Radiohead and creep by TLC. 
<laughs> but I like I like the idea of a, an original called Creep Creep. <laughs> I know a man named Larry Bird who I'm sure would be happy to write Creep Creep. <laughs> Speaking of creeps. Oh, God. Oh, is that when the transition started for us? When we started, when we made up alter egos that are the biggest creeps. Oh, my God. There's what made us feel like it was okay to bring it in public. Yeah. Even though we aren't wearing the, <laughs> the, the costumes, the mustaches. Oh, my God. Did the glue somehow from those mustaches <laughs> absorb into our bodies? And we're like, yeah, this is just, we're just creeps all the time now. Yeah. Behind oh, the mustache. No. The two crime and cocktails story, it fell apart. It doesn't matter. Listen, my lungs hurt. That was a gift in my life. And if you did, if you are one of the people who skipped this, what a disservice to you. Anyway, today we're talking, it's a twofer. It's a two for one. Yeah. We're talking Dorothy Arnold and Ambrose Small. I know absolutely no context on this, and I cannot wait. Always a pleasure. Going to give you some background now. Dorothy Arnold. You're doing great. You know, most podcasts would edit that out. Yep. And you know what we say? You get it nah. raw. Don't. Oh, we can't go back. <laughs> we just got out of Creep Creek. We can't go back. Okay, I'm, I'm taking the south mouth, but could I also just get, what is the... Baby, I like it raw. It's just a sack of raw wieners. <laughs> this food court is really bad. <laughs> oh, my God. The idea that they could say, and how would you like that? And then you have to say raw. But they're like, um, I'm so sorry. You have to, you know, it's like at Starbucks, you have to say venti. Yeah. But like, no, you can't say raw. You have to go, baby, I like it raw. <laughs> Again, it's not a sustainable business model, but I think we get a bit of a crowd at least once. I am very concerned about the crowd we are going to get. <laughs> oh, what I love, though, is you know our listeners, the secret creeps. Um, they're going to get behind this. I feel it. I feel 100%. it. 100%. They have to. Oh, what a gift. All right. <clears throat> Take two. Dorothy Arnold was a 25-year-old heiress who lived in New York. Ambrose Small was a 53-year-old theater owner living in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So what did Dorothy and Ambrose have in common? They both went missing over a century ago, and their cases have remained unsolved. Buckle up, dear listeners, as Christy takes us back in time to investigate not one, but two missing persons cases. Dorothy went shopping for a party dress and never returned home. And Ambrose went missing just 24 hours after making the biggest deal of his career. So what happened to Dorothy Arnold and Ambrose Small? Why did their families wait weeks before getting the police involved? And how does someone just vanish without a trace? Christy Oxborough investigates. You're damn right she does. <laughs> Fucking creep. Creep, creep. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Oh, this this went off the rails in such a beautiful way. Yep. And I thought yesterday we'd gone off the rails, but never it's always think amazing that, we, that yeah. we go f so much further than I always think we possibly can. And that's should be problem for us, but I just find it so inspirational. 
I was going to say charming. I agree. We can go so much further than we ever realized. Yep. Never think that you've reached the, the limit. Never think you've reached the ceiling. Because yep. we're smashing through them. Smash those creep ceilings. We're like little Mario and Luigi. Like, do 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 Thank you. Thank you for that and the sound effects. I liked it all. Uh, I also love when I give the disclaimer, it always feels like such a mood shift. Yeah. From where we were. Same goes. Well, let's get it. Listen, here we go. Yeah, we're getting there. We're so, ready. Disclaimer. This episode will contain mentions of suicide and abortion, so trigger warning for those who need it. Francis Rose Arnold was born July 22, 1837. His family was wealthy and well-connected, and apparently descendants of William Brewster, who immigrated to Canada on the Mayflower in 1620. William became the religious leader of the Plymouth Colony, which was the first permanent English colony in New England and the second permanent English colony in North America, the first being the Jamestown Colony, which was established in 1607 in Virginia. Francis graduated from Harvard with a PhD in 1856 and became a partner in the import business under F.R. Arnold and Company. Their main product was perfume and cologne. Fun fact, Francis had five siblings, the youngest of which was Harriet Maria Arnold. In 1867, Harriet married Rufus W. Peckham, who served as an associate justice of the US, on the U.S. Supreme Court from 1895 until his death in 1905, oh, 1909. Wow. On October 17, 1882, 45-year-old Francis married 25-year-old Mary Martha Parks Samuels, who was born in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, in 1857. Not relevant to the story, but damn, did it frustrate me. Side note. Please. Any regular listener of the show knows that I hate inconsistency, especially when it comes to dates and time frames. This one damn near broke my brain, but I didn't have time to focus as much as I would have, and it would have been wasted time. Anyhow, everything I could find about Francis Rose Arnold said he married a woman named Mary Martha Parks Samuels, October 17th, 1882. And everything I could find about Mary, including her gravestone, lists her birth as 1857. But I found a census that was taken in April 1910. Mary's age at the time was listed as 45. For all you math fans out there, you're probably quick to have noticed if Mary was born in 1857, she would have been 53, not 45. So then I thought, did they lie about Mary's age years earlier when they were getting married? If Mary was 45 in 1910, that would mean she was born at around 1865, making her 17 at the time of their wedding. I remind you that Francis was 45 mm. at the time. I assume that sort of thing happened a lot back in the day, and if that was the only discrepancy, I would have let it go. However, according to that census... Mary immigrated to the U.S. from Canada in 1900. But if that's true, then how did Mary and Francis get married eight years before she immigrated to the U.S.? 
especially when they had four children by 18 or by 1900. And all of those children were born in America. Interesting. And if that isn't confusing enough, we know Francis and Mary got married in 1882. But in 1910, they said they'd only both been married for five years. So then I thought, was the Mary on the census a second wife who also happened to be named Mary? Well, the second wife had the same middle initials, so that seems unlikely. Like, she was listed as Mary M.P. Yeah. So I'm like, that doesn't seem likely. And then my paranoid true crime brain starts thinking, what if Mary died? And Francis replaced her with a woman he paid to pretend to be Mary, and they got caught in their own web of lies in the census. The only way this would be true would be if the real Mary died under mysterious circumstances or she was outright murdered. Do I have any proof of this? I don't. <laughs> but the, sen the census could have just been wrong. It just feels like a puzzle, and the pieces just don't really fit together. None of it makes sense but I had to let it go or I was not getting this episode finished. So my point is, what the fuck was that about? I don't know. And also, there is no mention of a second wife anywhere. Interesting. So it's just none of the numbers are right. So I just don't understand what's happening there. But also the fact that Francis's daughter later goes missing and never seen again. It's like, was there an original Mary? We don't know. Anyhow. Now, as mentioned moments ago, Francis and Mary had four children, including John Wells in December 1883, Daniel Hinckley in February 1888, Marjorie Brewster in August 1891, and the fourth child, who was the second to be born, was Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold, born July 1st, 1885 in Manhattan, New York. She attended the Velton School for Girls, and in 1905, Dorothy graduated from Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania with a major in literature. A uh, after graduation, Dorothy moved back in with her parents in New York and told them she wanted to become a writer. In early October 2010, Dorothy asked permission to move to an apartment in Greenwich Village, believing that would be the best environment for an aspiring writer. However, Dorothy's father refused and told her, quote, a good writer can write anywhere. So Dorothy decided to give it a shot, and she wrote a short story called Poinsettia Flames, which she submitted to McClure's, an American monthly periodical that ran from 1893 to 1929. Dorothy told her family about the submission, and they all just chose to tease her mercilessly about it. And when McClure's rejected Dorothy's story, her family's teasing only increased. Darth Dorothy's sister Marjorie was set to have a coming out party on December 17th. So at 11 a.m. on December 12th, 1910, Dorothy informed her mother she was going shopping for a dress for the occasion. Mary offered to go with her, but Dorothy said, quote, no mother, don't bother. You don't feel just right, and it's no use going to the trouble. I mightn't see a thing. If I do, I will phone you. Dorothy left the Upper East Side home 
that she shared with her parents at 108 East 79th Street and walked 20 blocks to the Park and Tilford candy shop. There she bought a half pound box of chocolates, which she charged to her family's account. She left around noon and walked another 32 blocks to 27th Street, where she stopped at Brentano's bookstore on the corner of 27th and 5th Avenue. She flipped through books in the new fiction section before purchasing a copy of An Engaged Girl's Sketches by Emily Calvin Blake. Dorothy charged the book to her family's account and left. Outside the bookstore, Dorothy ran into an acquaintance named Gladys King. The women chatted for a few moments, during which Gladys gave Dorothy her note of acceptance to Marjorie's party. Dorothy may have mentioned walking through Central Park before heading home. Gladys excused herself, saying she was meeting her mother for lunch, and she was already late, as it was now 2 p.m. The women said their goodbyes, and Gladys said she got to the far corner of 27th Street, and she turned and waved back at Dorothy. And that is the last known time that Dorothy Arnold has been seen since. She was just 25 at the time of her disappearance. Dorothy was described as a Caucasian female, 5 foot 4, 140 pounds, with brown hair and blue-gray eyes. She was last seen wearing a navy blue tailor-made suit with a ruffled neck piece, a long blue coat, black velvet hat, and tan gloves. Dorothy also had lapis lazuli? Is that how you say that? Uh, drop earrings with a matching hat pin and a gold ring on her left index finger and a carved barrette. She was also carrying a black muff made of fox fur. When Dorothy didn't arrive home at, for supper, her family was concerned, as it was unlike Dorothy not to contact them if she wouldn't be home. They called some of Dorothy's friends, but no one had seen her. On each call, the family requested the friends not tell anyone that Dorothy was missing. When Elsie Henry called back around midnight looking for any news of Dorothy, Mary Arnold told Elsie, quote, Yes, she's here. But when Elsie asked to speak to Dorothy, Mary said, quote, She had a headache and went right to bed. I remind you that Dorothy has not been seen since that day. So for reasons we may never know, Mary Arnold just lied about Dorothy's return. Or did Dorothy return and then mysteriously vanish again before anyone outside of her family saw her? I don't know. Uh, the following day, Dorothy's older brother John contacted his friend John S. Keith, who was a junior partner at the law firm Garvin K. Armstrong. To spare any confusion between Dorothy's brother John and this lawyer named John, I'm just going to refer to that lawyer as Keith by his surname. Just seems easier. So Keith was summoned to the Arnold's <clears throat> house and asked to investigate Dorothy's disappearance. And I know what you're thinking. Why on earth didn't they call the police? Well, apparently, Francis was hoping to avoid any bad publicity. And while I know that it was a different time and well-to-do families were often very private about their affairs, in the end, Francis was more concerned about protecting his own reputation than he was about finding his daughter. And some may ask, since Keith was a lawyer and not an investigator, why on earth would he take on this case that he is not qualified for? The answer is, likely, he hoped that doing a favor for Francis Arnold would lead to Francis becoming a client and for a young lawyer starting out to have 
an incredibly wealthy man as your client wouldn't be the worst thing. So Keith spent weeks. He searched hospitals, jails, and morgues throughout New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, as those were the cities that Dorothy was deemed most likely to be. Keith even had to look at unidentified female bodies in the hopes of finding Dorothy, but he never got any sort of lead. But the first thing Keith did was search Dorothy's room. He noticed a pile of papers smoldering in the fireplace. The family claimed that Dorothy must have burned her latest manuscript after it was rejected. And while I'm not exactly a wilderness expert, I can't help but wonder if Dorothy supposedly set those papers on fire and then left the house around 11 a.m. Would that fire be smoldering 24 hours later? Not if somebody just left it to burn. If no one had been poking at it or something, maybe. Adding more to it, maybe. But just, I feel like it wouldn't still be going. <coughs> so in Dorothy's desk drawer, Keith found a pile of personal letters, some with European postmarks, all from a man named George Griscom Jr., known simply as Junior. Junior was a 42-year-old engineer who lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with his elderly parents. Dorothy and Junior met while she was attending college in Pennsylvania. They had continued to see each other after Dorothy had graduated, but when her parents learned about it, they said that it was an unsuitable relationship and Dorothy was forbidden from seeing him again. Francis later said, quote, It is not true that I objected to her having men call at the house. I would have been glad to see her associate with more young men than she did, especially some young men of brains and position, one whose profession or business would keep him occupied. I don't approve of young men who have nothing to do. While vacationing with her family at their summer home in York Harbor, Maine, in mid-September 2010, Dorothy asked her parents if she could go visit her former college classmate, Theodora Bates, in Cambridge. They agreed, and on September 16th, Dorothy left. However, she didn't go to Cambridge. She went to Boston, where she met up with Junior, who had arrived the day before and registered at the Hotel Essex. On the day that Dorothy arrived, Junior had registered a room for her at the Hotel Lennox. The couple were seen together over the course of a week, and on September 22nd, Dorothy visited a pawn shop and was given $60 for some jewelry that was worth roughly $500. She even gave her real name and address for their records. Two days later, Dorothy went back to York Harbor, and Junior returned home to prepare for a trip to Europe with his parents. Just before Thanksgiving, Dorothy went to actually visit Theodora Bates, who was teaching in Washington, D.C. at the time. She arrived Wednesday night. The next day, a large envelope was delivered to the house for her, which was odd, as there's no mail delivery on Thanksgiving. Theodora believed it was a rejected manuscript for Dorothy's second short story, Lotus Leaves. Dorothy didn't open it. She simply tossed it aside. The next morning, Dorothy came downstairs saying she was leaving. Theodora was surprised as she was expecting her guests to stay until Monday. But when Dorothy arrived at home, even her family was surprised she was back. But she told everyone she always intended to return home on Friday. Is it possible something in that envelope made her say, I gotta get out of here? 
Maybe. We don't know because we don't know what was inside it. But after the weekend, Dorothy went to the post office where she picked up several letters with European postmarks, which were likely the letters from Junior that Keith had found in Dorothy's desk. Dorothy wrote Junior a letter, which which, uh, he gave to her parents after her disappearance that read, quote, While it has come back, McClure's has turned me down. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. Mother will always think an accident has happened. Weeks into Dorothy's disappearance, her family still hadn't heard a thing, and Keith was struggling to find any clues. So Keith suggested that the Arnolds hire the Pinkerton Detective Agency, who immediately sent out a description of Dorothy to police departments across the country on January 22nd, 1911, six weeks after Dorothy was last seen. The detectives also encouraged Francis to hold a press conference about his daughter. So on January 26th, Francis called a group of reporters to his office where he offered a $1,000 reward for any information leading to Dorothy's return. That would be equivalent to about $32,000 in 2023. Francis said, quote, It would be bad enough if the daughter I loved so well were lying beside her grandmother in Greenwood Cemetery, but this suspense and uncertainty are a thousand times worse. But the odd thing about the press conference was that Francis outright admitted he believed his daughter was dead. And not only that, but Francis also believed the murderer had dumped Dorothy's body in the Central Park Reservoir. Quote from Francis, assuming that she walked up home through Central Park, she could have been taken, she could have taken the lonely walk along the reservoir There, because of the laxity of police supervision over the park, I believe it's quite possible she might have been murdered and her body thrown into the lake or the reservoir. Atrocious things do happen, though there seems to be no justification for them. So did he know more about her disappearance than he was admitting to? When the media finally learned of Dorothy's disappearance, they immediately tried to hunt down Junior, who was in Europe at the time with his parents. They discovered in early January, a young man and a heavily veiled woman had been seen visiting with Junior. They stayed for over two hours and left with a bunch of letters. The young man, it turns out, was Dorothy's older brother, 27-year-old John, and the veiled woman was Dorothy's mother, Mary. John returned home prior to the press conference, where Francis said that Mary had suffered from bad health which was made so much worse by their daughter's disappearance. Francis said Mary had gone to stay at a rest home in New Jersey to escape the anxious hours of waiting. The reporters were asked to not search for her. And surprisingly, they respected that and didn't look for Mary at all. But in reality, Mary was in Europe searching for her daughter. Junior and his parents returned to the U.S. in February, Junior then placed ads in personal columns in New York newspapers, begging Dorothy to reach out to him. He never received a response. Tips came in claiming that Dorothy could be a well-to-do lady who showed up in a Boston hospital, suffering from amnesia, or that she might be the woman who was seen selling shoe polish in Chicago or sending telegrams in Virginia. A nurse suggested that Dorothy might be a wealthy woman who was found in a Philadelphia sanitarium. Every lead was searched. No sign of Dorothy was ever found. 
On February 6th, less than two weeks after the press conference, Francis received a postcard that simply read, I am safe. It was postmarked from New York and appeared to be signed by Dorothy. However, it also could have been some sort of prank as Dorothy's handwriting was published in the newspapers along with photos and details of her disappearance. By April 1921, the Arnolds had spent over $100,000 to find their daughter. That is equivalent to $1.6 million in 2023. But despite the money, the case had gone cold. Then in December of that year, Captain John Ayers, who was the head of the Missing Persons Bureau in the NYPD, held a press conference at a high school where he was quoted as saying, quote, All that I can say is that it has been solved by the department. Dorothy Arnold is no longer listed as a missing person. The next day, Captain Ayers denied having said that and even claimed he was misquoted. (laughs) Francis Arnold died in 1922, although his obituary claimed it happened in 1924. Again, the dates with this this family will be the death of me. Uh, Francis's obituary stated, quote, He was the father of Dorothy Arnold, who mysteriously disappeared the afternoon of December 12, 1910, no indication of her fate ever being secured by her family, despite a worldwide search that never eased. Mr. Arnold entered vigorously into the efforts to discover the whereabouts of his daughter, but when theory after theory proved unavailing, he gradually gave up hope and retired to a life of seclusion. Mary Arnold died in 1928. Both Francis and Mary left wills which stated, and I quote, I have made no provision for my beloved daughter, Dorothy Arnold, as I am satisfied she is not alive. Wow! Yeah. In the summer of 1935, police said they were working on a tip that Dorothy had been seen near Fifth Avenue and 53rd Street. Officers were sent to the location and searched the area for hours, but came up empty. I assume it was a prank, because I find it very unlikely that someone would recognize Dorothy 25 years after her disappearance. So what do we think happened to Dorothy Arnold? Well, I'm sure there are numerous theories we could come up with, but I'm going to present you with six. Theory one, Dorothy ran off to start a new life. And no, I don't think her new life included Junior. Junior's mother died in 1918, followed by his father in 1920. Junior died in March of 1938, having never married. And yes, it's possible that Junior and Dorothy could live together without officially getting married, but Junior didn't move from where he was living at the time or go into hiding or anything to help keep up Dorothy's ruse. So I think if Dorothy did purposely vanish that day, I don't think Junior was involved in any way. But I do think it's possible that Dorothy voluntarily disappeared. We know she was carrying cash. The day before her disappearance, Dorothy withdrew $36 from the bank before going to lunch and a movie with her friends. She was then given her weekly $25 allowance. I don't know how much she spent at the lunch, but it's possible Dorothy had at least $50 cash, which is equivalent to over $1,500 in 2023. And despite having this cash on her, when she bought the chocolates and the book, she charged both of those to her family account. 
Plus, we know that Dorothy had previously pawned jewelry for cash, so it's more than possible she would do it again, increasing the amount that she took with her on the run. Also, buying chocolate and a new book is absolutely something I do before I travel. So is it possible buying a dress was just a ruse and Dorothy was really just preparing to take a long trip? One other curious thing is that a riverfront merchant claimed that a mysterious young woman of apparent refinement gave him jewelry in exchange for clothes to disguise herself as a man. Which might explain why no one matching Dorothy's description was ever seen on a boat or a train leaving the area at the time. Theory number two is that Dorothy left her home that day with the intention of taking her own life. Those close to Dorothy say that she had been depressed since her first manuscript was rejected, and some have claimed that Dorothy was distraught over the fact that Junior refused to marry her. I have also heard rumors that they were engaged secretly, but I couldn't confirm that either. But also, why wouldn't Junior have wanted to marry her? It it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, Some have suggested she got the idea from Junior's cousin, Andrew Griscom. In March 1905, Andrew allegedly fell in love with Elsie Hansom, an English governess who'd been working in his home. Andrew's parents didn't approve of the relationship, and Andrew was distraught about it. Two weeks after Elsie left the position, Andrew got on a ship traveling from London to New York, and he jumped overboard. The crew were unable to find his body. So did Dorothy do something similar? Well, no passengers matching her description were reported missing from any ocean liners at the time of her disappearance, and while I know that Dorothy was disappointed about the magazine rejection, and possibly that her parents disapproved of her relationship with Junior, but I just don't buy the suicide theory. I just don't believe that Dorothy would make stops to get chocolate and a book if she was just keeping up appearances. The book especially. The book especially. Right? Yeah. Anything is possible, but I just I just don't buy it. Theory number three, uh, some suggested it was icy outside that fateful day. Maybe Dorothy slipped and hit her head, causing amnesia. But no hospital in the city reported a woman with a concussion or any sign of amnesia that day that Dorothy went missing. We've talked on past episodes about people who got into an accident and are found years later living a completely new life with no memory of the old one. So I can't say it's impossible. I just think if Dorothy had fallen and gotten hurt, most likely someone would have witnessed it or at least come across her at some point. Yeah. Theory number four. Now, I want to say right away, right out the gate, there was absolutely no proof that Dorothy was ever pregnant. But there was a rumor that Dorothy died during a secret abortion. Around this time, there was a place in Pittsburgh known as The House. It was the home of a doctor called C.C. Meredith, who used his house as an underground women's clinic. In April 1914, the house was raided by police, Dr. Meredith, a second doctor, and nurse, and a man named H.E. Lutz were all arrested. Lutz told the district attorney that Dr. Meredith mentioned that Dorothy Arnold had been a patient of his, and Lutz kind of 
inferred that Dorothy had died from surgical complications and had been cremated in the basement. Lutz later testified that he witnessed another woman die under Dr. Meredith's care before the woman was cremated in the basement. During the police raid, they found two oversized furnaces in the basement of the house. So is it possible? In the grand scheme of anything being possible? Sure. We don't know how how physical Dorothy's relationship with Junior was. When they secretly met up in Boston, they had separate hotel rooms. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. If Dorothy did get pregnant, did Junior even know about it? I assume if he did, Dorothy potentially went to the clinic in Junior's hometown. I also assume there would be a similar clinic in New York, which would have saved her any travel time. But again, there is no proof that Dorothy was ever pregnant, so we can't say for sure. Theory number five, Dorothy was kidnapped. We know from doing this show that abductions happen more than we realize, and I'm sure that the lack of security cameras made abductions easier in 1910 than in present day. But the thing that makes me debate the likeliness of this is the fact that Dorothy came from a very wealthy family. So if she was abducted, why didn't her abductors contact the family asking for a ransom? And yes, it's possible someone grabbed her off the street randomly without the knowledge of who Dorothy was. But it would make sense for Dorothy to tell her abductors who she is to entice them to ask her family for money so that she would have a better chance at living. And if someone grabbed her just to take the money that she had on her, then why hasn't any trace of her been found? I can't say 100% sure she wasn't kidnapped. I'm just saying that I personally don't know if I believe that as an option. My final theory, number six, is that Dorothy was murdered. While Dorothy's mother and older brother traveled across the world searching for Dorothy, her father Francis was so quick to assume that she had been murdered. At that press conference on January 26, 1911, Francis said, quote, I am firmly convinced my daughter has been killed and I will spend every dollar I have in the world to avenge her death. Francis even admitted he believed that Dorothy's body had been thrown into the Central Park Reservoir. However, when Dorothy went missing, it was 21 degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 6 degrees Celsius, and the reservoir was frozen over. And then when it thawed, it was checked, and there was still no body. In April 1916, an inmate from Rhode Island State Prison claimed that he was involved in Dorothy Arnold's murder. Various sources mentioned this inmate, but each had a different first name, so we're just going to go by the surname, which was always the same, and call him Glenn Norris. While serving a two-year sentence for attempted extortion of a clergyman, Glenn Norris claimed he suddenly found God and wanted to come clean. Glenn Norris claims that in December 1910, he met a man named Benoit at a bar who asked him to help move a woman. So Glenn Norris, Benoit, and a man named Little Louie moved an unconscious woman from a house in New Rochelle to an old colonial house on the bank of the Hudson River in West Point. The day after the woman was moved, Glenn Norris was told the woman had died, and he was asked to return to the West Point house to help bury her. 
Glenn Norris described the woman's outfit as a blue skirt, shoulder wrap, earrings, and a ring on the left index finger. These were all details that were mentioned when Dorothy's disappearance was mentioned in the newspapers. Glenn Norris claims that when he arrived at the house, he and Louis dug a grave in the cellar and the woman was placed inside. He also claims he was paid $250 for his help. On April 21st, 1916, investigators searched the house in West Point that matched Glenn Norris's description and excavated the cellar, but no body and no sign of Dorothy was ever found. Police determined that Glenn Norris had lied and he was left to serve the remaining 18 months of his sentence. Uh, a year after he got out, he was imprisoned again for trying to extort money from the president of a glass company. So, learned nothing, I guess. Yeah. So, was Dorothy murdered and buried in a basement? We don't know for sure. If she was murdered, then who is the suspect? Since Junior was in Europe at the time, we know it wasn't him. He also didn't seem to have any motive for wanting Dorothy dead. So was it a random stranger, or was Dorothy specifically targeted, or was it a, simply a robbery gone wrong? If that's the case, I am surprised the suspects bothered to hide her body as well as they had. It's been over 112 years since Dorothy Arnold's disappearance, and as of February 2023, no sign of her has ever been found, and while it may be naive of me, my hope is that Dorothy walked away from her unsupportive family, changed her name, and happily lived her remaining years writing and dating anyone she damn well pleased. Absolutely. I would love to see that for her. Yes. Um. <clears throat> well, listen, I have lots of thoughts and yeah. my own theory I've built. Uh, well, like so that. let's take a quick break, hit the can, grab a drink, and we're going to be right back with more about the Dorothy Arnold case on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails. We are, of course, discussing Dorothy Arnold and Ambrose Small, but for now we're discussing the Dorothy Arnold case. And I've got a couple of theories here. And a little bit of batshit nonsense to talk of about, too. Um, I realized, <laughs> as you were giving the trigger warning, I was like, should we insert a trigger warning off the top of this episode that says, this episode contains mentions of masturbating doctors and south mouths? <laughs> oh, I, 
I think South Mouth is just going to be a fun surprise. Oh, yeah, that's going to be nice. A delight that they're going to come across. It's going to take everything I have not to use it as a promo. I think you should. Because we pass it, you know? Yeah. Just dangle that and then we'll get, that milkshake will bring all the boys to the yard. Well, at a Um, certain age, all of our South Mouths are dangling. (laughs) I can't. I set it up. Just a couple of creeps. Um, Okay. Well, you'll also love this. You were like, oh, I hate inconsistencies and I didn't have the time to spend on this. Yet she pulls out information that she pulled from the 1910 census. How dare you say that you didn't do your due diligence? And I just wrote, 1910 census? You minx. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Look. It's when I came across the census that I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. And that sent me down a spiral of yeah. what's going on. I I question everything, I think, because of this job. But it's I would have maybe let it go if there wasn't this huge disappearance that had happened in their family. So then I'm like, of course. Oh, of where's course. the real Mary? Of course. Could be the now same I have, person. I just won't let I it go. have three more uh, jokey comments, and then I get into the serious stuff. Sure. Um, the first was, you said, Francis and Mary, including John and my ADHD brain today, I don't know why. In my brain, I went, Mayor. Like, <laughs> I was like, as though they were, John Mayer was alive in the early mm-hmm. 1900s. No, you said John Wells. <gasps> Is he a um, vampire? I, well, think about it. Yeah. Uh, Dorothy was born on July 1st, Canada Day, for anyone yeah. not from Canada. Uh, then I thought you might have said 2010, and I was going to ask you in the moment, but I I was like, did you misspeak? Did you mean to say 1910? And then I went, Lauren, your ears, there is, your brain is is on fire. Don't think that she misspoke. It's probably you misheard. It's more than possible that I misspoke. No. no. Uh when you said she walked to a candy store and then to a bookstore, I was like, is she Belle? That is the beast. Uh, okay, now we get into the real stuff. Okay, so we know there's tension in the family about her writing and that they yes. don't support it. They also sure. don't support who she's dating. A lot of tension in the family. Sure. And I know that some may say, well, could that be leaving, leading her to, to taking her own life? In theory, sure. But what if this was the other way around? Because to me, it's odd that her mom was lying to people about her being home. And either, like you were saying, she actually did make it back home and then something happened. Or she was already dead at home and mom was covering. Go with me on this theory. She went to pick up a party dress, but we know that she bought candy and book and a book. Yeah. We don't know that she went to a store for a dress. She also charged those to the home account. Right. The family account. It is more than possible that after she left those stores, one or both of those shop owners called the house to say, FYI, do you approve this? Right. After the first one, they might have been a little irritated. After the second one, parents are getting pissed. Again, this is just a theory that I've concocted. Parents are getting pissed. Let's say she went to both those stores and did come home. Okay. They're mad. Okay. Let's also say, skipping ahead for a second, 
We know that a pile of papers was burning in the fireplace in her room 24 hours later. Yeah. Is it possible that while she was gone, a manuscript that she had submitted somewhere got returned or or she got rejected from something else or something, whatever. Is it possible that while she was gone, either that or snooping, the parents come across something she's written and it's autobiographical and it's painting them in a bad light? Oh. Is it possible that they, she comes home, they're pissed that she hasn't done what she said she was going to do. She bought candy and a book instead of getting a dress. They've also found this writing that paints them in a bad light. Do they get into some sort of argument which escalates quickly? And then as they're covering for it, they burn whatever this is that she wrote that was actually painting them in a bad life or bad light or telling a true tale about, right? Sure. Could it have also have been a letter from Junior in which he was reflecting back something that she had said about her strained home life? Sure. Um, because <laughs> it's also interesting to me that then they spent around what would be the equivalent now of a million dollars on searching for her. Is it possible yeah. that that was all to hide in plain sight? And that they reached a dollar amount that would have been her inheritance potentially. And then they were like, all right, that's enough. And then that's why they obviously didn't a lot of money to her because they know she's dead. They've already right? made it look like they cared. They spent her inheritance to keep up the ruse. Sure. Because it's abnormal for families to typically give up hope as quickly as they did. Oh, and he I understand did immediately. That they may have yeah. been pragmatic or whatever, but, like, it's a little odd. You don't see that quite that often. But it's like, oh, we just assume she's dead. Like, that doesn't really – it's just not typical. Right? Um, I also think it's interesting that she sent the letter to Junior saying her mom would always think it was an accident, kind of implying that maybe she was going, going to, to either fake her death or take her own life. Sure. The other thing I thought about that switching theories for a second was if she ran off to start a new life, part of that may have been covering her tracks with Junior, too. She sends him a letter saying, like, oh, I'm so despondent. Everyone's going to think mom's going to think sure. it was an accident, but I'm going to take my life, in which case she was just planting that seed with him so that she could run away and start a new life. Um, And then later, when when the doctor claimed that she had died and then was cremated in the basement. They said, is it possible that she went to them and said, I'm going to pay you money to tell this story if anybody asks and, and make it look like it was an accident Ooh. because that does come back to what she said to junior in the letter about mother will think it was an accident. That's a great point. Right? So is it possible that she paid them ahead of time to tell the story? She's like, don't go public right away. But if they come to you, tell them this. And not that I'm suggesting in any way that abortion is anything to be ashamed of at all. But certainly during this time period, oh, it was yeah. definitely could have been something that would bring shame, quote unquote, to the family. Sure. The family also sounded like they were really hard, like they were very judgmental yeah. of her in general. So is it possible that that was her final F.U.? Was that it was like, I'm going to make it look like I died getting an abortion. Sure. So that, you know what I mean? So you'll have to live with that. 
yeah. as revenge. Oh, Kidnapping, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, what are the motives for kidnapping? Murder, money, yeah, or trafficking, human trafficking. Sure. That's it. Now, I'm not suggesting that human trafficking didn't exist then. It's always existed. So is that a possibility? Sure. But it does feel like because she was so moneyed, she dressed so nicely. Again, if she was kidnapped, I agree with you that even if their intention had been trafficking, I think they would have been like, oh, this is a moneymaker. No, we're going to we're going to pivot. Yes. Um, the only way that that changes is if they were just kidnapping to, to kill. Um, but again, I just don't know. I feel like they would have found a body. Oh, I, I agree. Uh, so long story short, too late. Um, that's my two cents. I feel like either my theories, you know, speculating are she was killed by one or both of her parents that day and they covered it up or she faked her own death quite, uh, successfully using the money that she had that we know that she had on her person right? and all of the above. Oh, I think it's more than possible. Because it's, it's possible that she got the disguise to look like a man, took a train yep. to where, um, the, to the house, which was the name of the place where the abortions were done, yep. and made that deal. Oh, it's absolutely possible. I just, it's so weird for her mother to say, she's home. And then all of a sudden, we're searching everywhere for her. So then it, I'm just like, did she come home late? And they panicked. And she walked in late because she just didn't care about their rules anymore. She was 25. She was over it. Yeah. And it was like, you know what? I'm going to go live my life. I'm going to move to Greenwich Village, whatever. And they were like, well, you can't do that. Something happens, fall down the stairs or whatever. And they have to, they just continue with the ruse of, oh, she's missing. Yeah. They also have more than enough money that they could pay off police. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. not the same kind of internal affairs investigations then that I'm assuming that would happen now. To sure. your point, there's no security camera footage. There's no CCTV to rely on. Like, yeah. I think it was easier at that time either to personally disappear or to get away with to get away with murder. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Especially when the fact that the father, or I guess when she first went... When before she'd even gone missing, when she was leaving the house that day, she said to her mother, you're unwell. I'm going to go by myself. Which is also very, I don't want you to go because I plan on not coming back. Right. But then it's then all of a sudden, you know, at the press conference, it's like, oh, yeah, my wife is unwell. But she was traveling in Europe searching for her daughter. And it's like, so what illness did everybody think she had? Yeah. And did she? I get Great that he question. said she was unwell and in a home and whatever to make people stop snooping about it. I just can't believe the reporters listened. I know. And we're like, yeah, that's right. We should probably leave them alone. You know what would be amazing is if she went on to be a, a famous writer. And we don't know. I know. I That we've, we've it, all it, been reading her works for years and had no idea it was actually her. She changed her name or potentially what I would have suggested was use a male's name at that point get in time further back then yes yeah. oh yeah i've wondered i meant to but i didn't have the time look up uh authors that 
you know, came out in like the 1910s, just out of curiosity. Yeah. And do we know what all of them looked like? Because I mean, my God. Yeah. But anyway, fascinating. I yeah. can't wait to, to, to switch over now to the case of Ambrose Small. I know it's weird to do two in one, especially when they aren't connected, but uh, just means even more true crime. I like it. In the world. Um, so this next case takes place in Canada. So to avoid any confusion, when I mention London, I am referring to London, Ontario, Canada, not London, England. Just to be clear, yes. instead of having to always say Canada or always say England, just I'm um, speaking Canada. So Daniel Small and Ellen Brazil got married in 1865. Daniel ran Small's Hotel in Bradford, Ontario. Daniel was 23 at the time and Ellen was 21. The couple had three children, Ambrose Joseph Small on January 11th, 1866, followed by Florence in 1877 and Gertrude in 1883. A few years after Ambrose was born, they moved to Bolton, where Daniel ran another hotel, and then in 1874, the family moved to Toronto, where Daniel leased the National Hotel and a tavern at the corner of Queen and Bathurst Streets. Ah! Ambrose attended De La Salle College, a Catholic all-boys academy, where he was second in his class in English grammar and natural philosophy. In 1880, Daniel opened the Grand Hotel, which was located next door to the Grand Opera House on Adelaide Street. Fun fact, the Grand Opera House was built in 1874, the same year that the Small family moved to Toronto. And while that may not seem like a fun fact now... The fact that Ambrose Small would later become synonymous with the Grand Opera House makes it a fun fact for the wacky bitch who researched this. <laughs> and I just want you to know, in my notes, I literally wrote wacky woman. But my energy today made me swap that out on the fly. Hell so, yeah. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. A South Mouth. I can't. I don't know what that was. So the Grand Opera House burnt down in 1879, killing the carpenter and his family who lived in the apartment above. The theater was rebuilt in just 51 working days with wider staircases and staff apartments that each had fire escapes. The play that was being shown at the time of the fire was Macbeth, oh, which has shit. been said to be cursed. Allegedly, some witches were against Shakespeare using real incantations in the play, so they put a curse on it to this day. You don't say it in a theater to this day. Yeah. Uh, Ambrose displayed a strong work ethic from an early age. As a boy, he started selling newspapers from his parents' storefront. And in 1884, he got a job as an usher and bartender at the Grand Opera House. While there, Ambrose also created a matchmaking pamphlet, which has something to do with horse racing. Uh, and apparently this pamphlet was so good, it impressed the Grand's manager, Oliver Barton Shepard, who offered Ambrose the job of assistant treasurer. Just days after Christmas in 1887, Ambrose's mother, Ellen, died from kidney disease at just 43 years old. Ambrose was 21 at the time. His sisters were 10 and 4. Ambrose handled the loss by throwing himself into work and was soon promoted to treasurer. And in 1889, Ambrose and his boss, Shepard, 
got into what author Katie Dobbs described as a, quote, violent quarrel, and Ambrose was fired. I don't know what the issue was, but it was bad enough that Ambrose swore vengeance against Shepard, which also just feels incredibly traumatic to me, but I love it. Ambrose was quickly hired by the Toronto Opera House, which was more of a vaudeville and melodrama theater, where Ambrose was soon promoted to manager. In 1891, Ambrose's father, Daniel, got remarried to a woman named Josephine Corman, the daughter of a beer magnate, Ignatius Corman. Not only did Ignatius own Corman Brewery, he also owned interests in the Grand Hotel, which was owned by Daniel Small. I just assume that was how Daniel and Josephine met, as Daniel's tavern and his hotel both sold beer made from the Corman Brewery. Josephine was 28 at the time of the wedding. Her new husband was 56. But the thing I find crazy is that Josephine was almost the same age as her new stepson, Ambrose, who was 25 at the time. The small daughters were 14 and 8. Shortly after the wedding, Ignatius died unexpectedly, leaving the brewery to his wife, Mary Eva, and their 11 children. Josephine was the second oldest and the firstborn daughter. Josephine soon became pregnant and gave birth to Percy in 1892 and Madeline in 1894. Daniel sold the Grand Hotel and opened a liquor store a few blocks north. Ambrose was said to be a reckless gambler at the track, but by 1892, he owned the mortgages on both the Toronto Opera House and the Regent Theatre. So Ambrose seemed to understand the public's taste in entertainment, and he was willing to adapt to change, which helped him work his way to the forefront of Ontario's highly competitive theatre business. In 1902, Ambrose bought small theatres in Hamilton, Kingston, St. Thomas, and Peterborough, as well as leased some others. Ambrose was known for his skills in business, but he was also known for his energy and magnetic personality that seemed to attract oodles of women, if I may use the term oodles. You may. Most were chorus girls that Ambrose lured with chocolate. If there's a way to my heart, it's a it's a chocolate or a Slurpee. And I also like that there's a through line of chocolate between these two episodes. Oh, there's a couple things. Like, I, I chose the one... Because I was like, oh, that case is fascinating, but there's not enough to it for a full episode. And then I was like, did anybody else go missing around the same time that I can put in the same thing? And I found the name and there were multiple things that came up between both that I was like, well, it just feels right to put them together. But yeah, it is what it is. Uh, So Ambrose luring these women in with chocolate. uh, But despite how many women he was luring in. He decided to set his sights on the younger sister of his stepmother. Oh, God. Teresa Corman was the seventh born child to Ignatius and Mary Eva and approximately 32 years old when Ambrose took an interest. She was traveled and well-educated with the ability to read eight languages. Teresa was a devout Roman Catholic who was interested in the arts and volunteer work. Ambrose, on the other hand, was a womanizer and a gambler, so it just didn't seem like they had anything in common, other than the fact that they both had very impressive financial status 
amongst their families. But Ambrose was 36 and ready to move out on his own, which I'm sure not sure why he hadn't already done, but the couple became engaged and two weeks before their wedding, Teresa's mother, Mary Eva, died from cancer. The couple decided to go ahead with the wedding as scheduled, and on November 6, 1902, Ambrose and Teresa were married. He married his aunt. His step-aunt, technically. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. No judgment. Just okay. Uh, following the death of her mother, Teresa inherited a, inherited a $72,000 estate, including a house, horses, stocks, and $30,000 cash. That seventy-two thousand is equivalent equivalent to about two point five million in twenty twenty-three. Wow! With this inheritance, Teresa helped Ambrose buy some of the theaters that he had been leasing, including the Hamilton Grand Opera House in nineteen o three and the London Grand Opera House in nineteen o five. Ambrose also bought the mortgage on the Grand Opera House, his what people call his first true love. Uh, and finally got his vengeance by firing his ex-boss, Oliver Shepard. <laughs> which is That's... a level of petty I absolutely would do. I love it. Being considerably wealthy, Ambrose and Teresa lived a very comfortable life. Teresa went on shopping trips to Europe, while Ambrose went on trips to racetracks throughout the United States. And while Teresa was away, Ambrose had a secret chamber built behind his private balcony in the Grand Opera House, where he continued to entertain a variety of young women. Oh, boy. It included a bar, a bed, and a painting of a nude woman. (laughs) A little on the nose. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and also no chocolates, huh? You're losing me. If there was a slushy machine in there, I'm in. Otherwise, no thanks. (laughs) Uh, Teresa found out about the affairs after she stumbled on some love letters that had been written to Ambrose. But surprisingly, Teresa didn't seem to mind, as the couple had separate bedrooms in their Rosedale mansion, and as her husband continued to lavish her with extravagant gifts, such as diamond pins, pearl necklaces, a sealskin coat trimmed with chinchilla, and then a silver fox fur coat when the chinchilla coat was no longer good enough— so once that kept coming in, she didn't seem to mind that he had his time with other women. Right. In 1906, Ambrose was elected president of the Canadian Theatrical Managers Association. His empire grew to include 34 theaters, half of which were outside of Ontario. Ambrose became increasingly wealthy and became one of the first people to own a motor car in the province as well as one of the first Torontonians, if I may, uh, to build a garage in their backyard. Uh. And being among the first means they were also one of the first to hit a pedestrian. Oh, God. In 1906, while driving back from High Park, the chauffeur struck Jane Porter, a nurse who was waiting for a streetcar on her way to work. Jane did not survive. As was common at the time, Jane was blamed for her own death. Of course. Yep. Ambrose gained a reputation for being ruthless when it came to business. He was an unyielding negotiator and was even known for secretly adding clauses into business contracts that would eventually screw over his associates and his rivals. And then when he got caught, he would blame his employees 
for the clauses. Uh, one specifically described Ambrose as, quote, he was a good friend if he liked you, a very vindictive, vindictive man if he didn't, and downright nasty if you went behind his back. To know what Ambrose was like as a boss, on example, there was a reporter for the Globe who did some PR work for Ambrose on the side. Ambrose quite liked this gentleman, so much so that he offered him a full-time job, but the reporter turned him down. Ambrose was so offended that he sent defamatory letters about that reporter to the boss at the uh, the Globe's editor-in-chief. The reporter left, went to New York to find work, only to learn that Ambrose had spread a rumor that the reporter was lazy and a no-good fool. He was completely blacklisted. The reporter got so angry, he showed up at Ambrose's office with a gun. Security was able to prevent anything from happening, and you would think that maybe Ambrose would be like, ah, oh, you know what, that was shitty of me. Time to Time to take a look back at my life. Instead, he just responded to the incident by having a cage built around his desk. <laughs> oh, wow. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, other business associates described Ambrose as underhanded, shrewd, quarrelsome, and ambitious. One acquaintance said, quote, I may be a damned liar and a damned thief, but you insult me, sir, when you call me Ambrose Small. <laughs> wow. Yee. So clearly... Ambrose was not very well liked by those who did business with him, but he was widely beloved by the women who knew him. Despite being married, Ambrose continued to have extramarital relationships, and Teresa was able to turn a blind eye to these fleeting trysts. That is, until Clara Smith. Clara met Ambrose in 1914, when Ambrose was 48, and Clara was 19. Ugh... At the time, Clara was married to a man named Jimmy Smith, but Ambrose helped Clara get a divorce in 1917. Clara went back to using her maiden name Shepherd, while Ambrose bought her clothes, gifts, and even an apartment near his house. In 1918, Clara married a second time to a salesman named Douglas Jennings, but despite getting married, Clara continued to see Ambrose. And it's not my notes, but I will say it quickly. The, um visual similarities between Clara and Teresa are shocking. Oh, God. So he just, like, wanted a younger version. Yeah, but also, I saw a photo of Clara. This is no shade. But I was like, there is no way that is a 20-year-old girl. Oh, interesting. Like, so it's just it's just weird to me. But I assume it's a... Teresa didn't fawn, on all, fawn all over him like right. Clara did. And he had a bit of an ego from my understanding. Yeah. So, Teresa seemed okay with the one-night stands, but a full-fledged girlfriend angered her. Teresa confronted Ambrose and told him Clara needed to leave Toronto. And somehow, Clara got her wish, or sorry, Teresa got her wish, and Clara and her husband moved to Minnesota. But Clara continued to send Ambrose long letters telling him she had made a mistake because Ambrose was her one true love. An example of Clara's letters to Ambrose include the lines, quote, I could kill myself when I think of what a fool I've been. I haven't the least particle of love for him, and I still love you with my heart and soul. Clara said that she had a slight nervous breakdown, and she ran off to New York 
inviting Ambrose to join her. One letter said, quote, I just love a good time and I wish you would come down and I will take you to all my favorite rendezvous and have a wonderful time. So the couple continued to write up until Ambrose's disappearance in 1919. Clara wrote, write me often, sweetheart, and for my sake, be a real good boy. And if you ever feel you can't be true to me any longer, for God's sake, tell me and don't let me find out from someone else because that would kill me. I love that it's like, please, for the love of God, do not cheat. And it's like, but he's cheating being with you. And so is she. Yet. Great point. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like in her mind, because she genuinely loves him, that's the, and the marriage is just a, a piece of paper, I guess. Yeah. In 1919, the growing popularity of motion pictures was causing live theater attendance to decline. In 1904, there were more than 400 companies traveling and performing throughout North America. By 1919, there were only about 40. Mm. And Ambrose could sense that now was the right time to get out of the business. So when he was approached by Montreal-based company TransCanada Theatres Limited, Ambrose was anxious to sell his chain of theaters for $1.7 million, which is equivalent to just over $29 million in oh, 2023. Wow. TransCanada agreed to pay Ambrose $1 million at the signing and then yearly installments of $37,500 for 20 years. Ambrose, Teresa, and attorney Edward Flock met with TransCanada Theatre representative at a law office on Young Street on December 1st, 1919. Contracts were signed and TransCanada handed Ambrose a certified check for $1 million. On December 2nd, Ambrose and Teresa left their house separately with the agreement they would meet at his office at the Grand Opera House. They needed to meet with Edward Flock about some remaining details on the deal. Ambrose ordered some gifts for his wife, including a $3,500 fur coat a $10,000 Cadillac limousine, and $13,000 worth of jewelry. Those gifts today would be worth over $450,000. Wow. Ambrose arrived at the Grand at 2 p.m. Teresa and Edward were already there waiting for him. They spoke briefly, and then Ambrose and Teresa deposited the check at the Dominion Bank on King and Young Streets. The couple headed to the grant, back to the Grand, where they had lunch with Edward before Ambrose dropped Teresa off at St. Vincent de Paul Orphanage, where Teresa volunteered. That same day, Teresa also made a sizable donation to the orphanage. Ambrose told his wife he would be home by 6. At 5 p.m., Ambrose met with Edward back at the Grand to deal with some other business matters, such as the fact that Ambrose was looking to buy another theater so he could give jobs to the staff at the Grand Opera House, as it was assumed that once TransCanada came in, everyone would get fired. So that's the nicest thing I heard about him, was he was trying to look out for those particular employees. So, yeah. I mean, that was decent. Uh, Ambrose invited Edward to join him and his wife for dinner, but Edward declined as he was about to catch a train to London. Flock then left the office around 5.30 p.m. Just after six, Ambrose bought a newspaper from a street vendor and was never seen or heard from again. Ambrose was described as a Caucasian male, five, six, or seven, about 135 to 140 pounds with blue eyes, brown hair, 
and a sizable mustache. He was last seen wearing a dark tweed suit and dark overcoat with velvet hat or velvet collar and soft felt hat. Ambrose was 53 at the time of his disappearance. When Ambrose didn't arrive home by six, as he had said he would, Teresa didn't seem concerned. In fact, she didn't talk to anyone about Ambrose's disappearance for weeks. She later claims that Ambrose had a tendency to go off radar with the occasional chorus girl. Uh, Teresa said, quote, I believe my Ambi is in the hands of a designing woman somewhere and will come back. Shout out to the classic show Designing Women. Yes. I would give that a rewatch in a heartbeat. Uh, Teresa later told police that she wanted Ambrose's absence kept quiet because when he came back, he would be upset to learn that she had made such a fuss. But some were more concerned about Ambrose's whereabouts than others. On December 26th, attorney Ed Flock telephoned James Cowan, the manager at the Grand Opera House, to ask if Ambrose had returned. James responded, quote, no word yet at office or home, am worried. Police were finally informed of the disappearance two weeks later, on December 16th, by James Cowan, the manager at the Grand Opera Theater. Grand Opera House, sorry. Ambrose's disappearance wasn't announced publicly until January 3rd, 1920, with a newspaper article titled, Startling Disappearance of Toronto Millionaire Causes Grave Apprehensions. Ambrose's mistress Clara traveled to Toronto to speak with police once in 1920 and again in 1922, but somehow they were able to keep her name out of the papers. Clara filed for divorce in 1921 after three years of marriage, citing cruel and inhumane treatment. The divorce was officially granted in 1922, the same year that Clara's name just disappears from public record. Whoa. No clue where she went, what she did, anything. There is a part of me that wonders if she changed her name to Small. Mm. I mean, I guess in the grand scheme of things, it's possible maybe they waited two years after the disappearance to suddenly be together and go off somewhere. But I think it's more likely not. But I wouldn't be surprised if she changed her name to Clara Small. Just, you know, either way. So at first, Teresa offered a $500 reward for any information on her husband's whereabouts, and circulars were distributed distributed, distributed throughout Canada and the United States. Teresa then increased the reward to $15,000 if Ambrose was found dead, and $50,000 if he was found alive. And the new rewards made Ambrose's disappearance an international sensation. Tips came flooding in. I, of course, don't have time to read them all, so the following is just some examples of the tips police received. Uh, Two newsboys named Nat and Louis Savian claimed they saw Ambrose walking east on Adelaide Street at some point after 5.30. Fred Lamb, who owned the hotel next door to the Grand, said that Ambrose had stopped in and stayed until 7 p.m. The problem is Fred couldn't remember if that happened on December 1st, or December 2nd. Alfred Elson, a caretaker of a building on Bloor Street, claimed he saw four men bury something heavy in a dump in Rosedale Ravine on the night of December 2nd. 
An engineer with McLean Publishing Company claimed that he saw Ambrose being held in a speeding car driving north on Young Street. A magician named Blackstone swore in an affidavit that he saw Ambrose playing roulette in Juarez, Mexico in April 1920. Hmm. A New York lawyer received a series of letters from a writer who signed B.B. Friend, claiming that Ambrose was being held by gangsters and offering to carry on negotiations. The letters from B.B. Friend mysteriously stopped. Mm. An investigator from Vienna claimed that Ambrose had been taking had been taken to a rooming house in Montreal where his body was burned in a furnace. Police followed up on the tips, but they were all found to be groundless. And some were such obvious lies that a few people were arrested for extortion. Inmates from asylums mailed in clues to the police claiming that either they knew where Ambrose was or that they themselves were Ambrose. Police intercepted a telegram to a store owner in New York from someone in Niagara Falls. The telegram read, quote, Hold small until tomorrow morning. Don't let him go under any circumstances. Detectives spent days in New York tracking down leads, but came up empty. When a newspaper reporter learned that Sherlock Holmes author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was visiting in New York, they gave Doyle a brief of Ambrose's disappearance, which he actually accepted. They then ran a headline that read, Sherlock Holmes takes small case under wing. But either Doyle didn't actually take the brief or he forgot about it because he was not involved in the case in any way. A month after Ambrose went missing, John Doughty, who had been Ambrose's secretary for 18 years, also disappeared. When police searched Ambrose's safe deposit vault, they found $105,000 worth of bonds missing. Doughty was found 11 months later in a logging camp in Oregon. When Doughty was returned to Toronto, he showed police the missing bonds were stuck between the walls of an attic room in the home of Doughty's sister. Doughty was arrested on charges of theft and conspiracy to kidnap. Several employees at the Grand claimed that Doughty had told them about his plans to kidnap Ambrose over his disappointing wages. Allegedly, Doughty had complained for years that Ambrose only paid him $45 a week, which would have been about $2,340 a year. And according to StatCan, the average salary in 1920 was $1,811 a year, which is well below what Doughty was being paid. But without a body, the kidnapping charge did not stick and Doughty was sentenced to six years for theft. He was released after four. Doughty died in August 1949 without having mentioned Ambrose again. In 1922, Teresa submitted a will that was dated September 6, 1903, which read, quote, I devise and bequeath all my real and personal property whatsoever and wheresoever to my wife, Teresa. He also appointed her his sole administrator and executor. She also submitted an agreement that was allegedly written by Ambrose, which claimed that Teresa was entitled to half of the $1 million check. The agreement, though, was likely a forgery 
written by Teresa's friend Felix Devine, who was known to be a very clever penman who could copy any writing. Also, there wasn't really time to write a she's she gets half of this. Yeah. Since it just happened. But I digress. A judge named J.A.C. Cameron accepted the will and awarded Teresa $800,000 from Ambrose's estate, which Teresa claimed belonged to her, plus a $30,000 allowance and use of the couple's home. It was later found that Teresa had paid Cameron nearly $20,000. So another judge, Judge Meredith, reversed Cameron's orders and Teresa was ordered to pay $800,000 back to the estate with interest until she proved she had a legal right to it. In 1923, the Supreme Court of Ontario declared Ambrose Small officially dead, which meant Teresa got most of his estate. Ambrose's sisters, Florence and Gertrude, filed a claim against the estate asking for $200 a month and $7,000 arrears. On April 29, 1924, a settlement was reached that gave the sisters each $100,000. Teresa bequeathed most of the estate to the Roman Catholic Church after her own death in October 1935. Florence and Gertrude tried to claim money from Teresa's estate, but they were unsuccessful. The sisters, who had been financially supported by Ambrose their entire adult lives, claimed that Teresa had, consider- had conspired to have Ambrose murdered. The police excavated the basement of the small mansion in Rosedale, as well as the basement of the Grand Opera House and a ravine in Rosedale, but nothing was ever found. When the Toronto police found no evidence connecting Teresa to Ambrose's disappearance, the sisters accused the police of being involved in the conspiracy. And it wouldn't be the only conspiracy that Florence Small believed. On October 26, 1940, Gertrude Small married an electrician named Warren Bell. Florence was against the union, as the 39-year-old groom was almost 20 years younger than the bride. Oh! You don't see that every day. Uh, The day after the wedding, the newlywed's car was found in a lake. Florence believed someone drugged and murdered her sister. An inquest was held into the incident, but uh, Florence, not Florence, Gertrude, And her husband, Warren, uh, their deaths were ruled accidental drowning. Florence refused to believe it and continued to claim it was murder until her own death in March 1953 at the age of 77. But one thing I find interesting is that Florence was such a big advocate for her sister after her death, and yet she chose to have her sister buried in an unmarked grave. That's so weird. Maybe money was an issue. I don't know. It just felt odd to me. Unless she was trying to avoid people knowing where she was. That's possible. I don't know. So, what could have happened to Ambrose Small? There is the possibility he ran off and started a new life. It's possible. I'm skeptical because not only did Ambrose not take any clothing, he also didn't touch his bank account even after depositing a million-dollar check. He also didn't write any checks for any accommodation or transportation. Is it possible he had cash on him? Maybe there was no record of Ambrose withdrawing any money before he disappeared. Also, that man spent most of his life in the lap of luxury, 
going around gambling, you can't tell me he wouldn't have continued that on and he would have needed money for it. It was found that Ambrose's keys, watch, and jewelry had all been left behind, which doesn't sound like something a man on the run would do. But there were also questions as to where the keys were found. Teresa first claimed she found them on the afternoon of December 2nd. But then she told police she actually found them the night of December 2nd. And in a third interview, she said she found them in Ambrose's bedroom on December 3rd. Mm -hmm. (coughs) I also don't believe that Ambrose would have taken his own life as he had just made a fortune and the world was full of possibilities. We obviously don't know his mental state. I'm just saying I find that unlikely. Is it possible that Ambrose got hurt in some way and ended up with amnesia? In the grand scheme of anything being possible, sure. But Ambrose was so well known in Toronto, he would have likely been identified by anyone who came across him. And if he wasn't abducted in some way, I think his abductors would have attempted to either get into his vault or get money from his bank account. But no, none of the money was ever touched. So it's unlikely he was taken unless he was taken for the sole purpose of being murdered. According to the caretaker of the Grand Opera House, the day after Ambrose disappeared, the caretaker went into Ambrose's office and said that a, the leg of his rolling chair was broken and there were cigarette butts scattered on the ground. <coughs> oh, the thing about that is Ambrose didn't smoke. Oh, so where'd the cigarette butts come from? A few days later, the caretaker said someone called the Grand and said, is this the Grand Opera? Would you like to know where Mr. Small is? The caretaker said yes. The caller responded, quote, well, keep your mouth shut or you will be in the same place as him. In my opinion, I think that it's most likely that Ambrose was murdered, but by who? Well, based on the way he did business, it could have been almost anyone. But there is a strong belief that Teresa was somehow involved. In 1930, Teresa allegedly told a newspaper reporter that she saw Ambrose's secretary, James Doughty, hit Ambrose while at his office and that his body was disposed of elsewhere. And while I'm not saying this did or didn't happen, Doughty was so angry with Ambrose and Teresa not only stood to gain financially from her husband's death, but he had also been openly cheating on her for years, which I'm sure caused a lot of anger and resentment. So it would make sense for Teresa to hide the truth from the police. Teresa also gave conflicting statements to the police about where and when she found Ambrose's keys and conflicting statements about what time she saw Ambrose on the day he disappeared. But again, police found no evidence linking Teresa to her husband's disappearance. But with the amount of money in her bank account, I wouldn't be surprised if Teresa simply paid to make any evidence disappear. After all, she allegedly paid a judge to rule in her favor about Ambrose's will before he was officially declared dead. And we've been doing this show long enough to know that money tends to make things disappear. Speculation over what happened to Ambrose Small has been the subject of numerous books and even a radio play. One author theorized that Ambrose's body was incinerated in the furnace of the London Grand Opera House. A Canadian crime historian theorized that 
Teresa was involved and that she paid the police officer in charge of the case to cover it up. But sadly, we will likely never know what happened to Ambrose. In December 1960, the Toronto police destroyed their files on the Ambrose small case and declared it closed. So whoever was involved in Ambrose's disappearance has long since taken their truth to the grave. Responding, responding, fuck, I, I was seeing such a great, fuck it, I'm Christy. It's fine. <laughs> I was doing, I felt like I was, I was in like a tone. It was really good. And then you, I fucked up the word and it all you were on fire. crouching down. Crouching I look. Down. I'm all for it. Listen, let's take one more break, get another drink, hit the can, and we're going to come back and wrap things up about the Ambrose Small case on this. Was it Ambrose Small? Yeah. Yep. Wow. You're doing great. On this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the case of Ambrose Small. Um, fun fact. Hey. For you. Yeah. I believe that the corner of Queen and Bathurst. Yeah. Was a strip club called Jilly's for many years. It may have been in that same building. Hey. The Grand Hotel. It was a very old hotel. Uh, it's now not. It's not that anymore. It's It's a nicer I shouldn't say that. Jilly's was an icon. It was an iconic place. But now it's it's been renovated, let's put it that way, into something else. Sure. It's a popular wedding venue. Wow. There you go. From bachelor party to wedding. Yeah. That's nice. That's nice. That's a nice glow up. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, now, you brought up, of course, the Scottish play, which yes. as a thespian, we don't say the, the name of. Of course. Uh, certainly not in a theater. Uh, and then I thought, is that the original Glee curse? Interesting. Throwing it out there. Yeah. A dramatic uh, next in the series. Um, he was a womanizer and a gambler. I loved that. I loved uh, he was a good friend if he liked you. Really painting a picture. Yeah. Um, do we think there's any way that Clara in some sort of. I don't know, fever dream state. Sure. Could have killed him. I could absolutely see it being like a, I've told you how I feel. You are the love of my life. Leave her already for me. And him being like, I'm not 
going to leave her. Like, if, if I can't have you, no one can type vibe. Yes. Likewise, could it have been her husband? Oh, I would think so. I'm curious if he knew. She yeah. would go with him when he would travel, and then she would scoot off to go see Ambrose. And it's like, did you know about that? Because I know that they were living in Minnesota, but they could have easily come back and done a murder. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that he deposited his check in a bank at King & Young. Yeah. I believe that that bank vault still stands. There's a hotel that I hey. believe is now in that place. And don't quote me, all the Torontonians are yelling at me right now. It's been a minute. Anyway, there's a vault inside and you can actually go and like, like it's either a bar or a restaurant. I can't remember. And you can go and sit in the vault. I've done it. It's magical. It's a, it's a hey. cool experience. Oh, that's I believe fun. it would probably be the same bank. Yeah. That's fun. Um, history. I'm sorry, but the name Felix Divine yeah. is the greatest detail I've ever asked for. <laughs> sure. Felix Divine, forgeries and best friendships. Right? I yeah. feel like I want I want to know more about him. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, I would yeah. watch that movie. Now, you were saying Clara, of course, got divorced in 22 and then disappeared from public record, which yeah. I agree with you. There's a million things that could have happened there. It does also feel possible to me that they could have run away together, that, that that's why she disappeared from public record. Sure. Is it possible he had been secretly sending her money? Was there a nest egg built somewhere? I don't know. I guess for me, he seemed... Not to give a diagnosis, but psychologist had on, he seemed to have some traits of narcissism. Sure. And it feels to me like you've just come into a massive amount of money. Yeah. I don't know. Like it doesn't add, uh, to be honest with you, the only one that really resonates with me too is a murder plot because I don't, I just don't think that, again, to your point, we never know what people are struggling with personally and we're not downgrading that. But putting that aside, Given his pattern of always having a woman, always having dalliances, always, you know, all these kinds of things, the power, the fact that we know that he was, you know, hard to work with, the fact that people had grudges against him, like, it just doesn't feel to me like any of the possibilities other than murder. And the detail that there were cigarette butts in his office, but he didn't smoke, that to me is where I would start. Right? If I was a detective back in the day. I would have liked also, to see that. lady detectives in like the early 1900s. I know. Come on. Are we going to write a period piece? I think it's the only way. It could be part of our time travel series. I also like the idea of maybe us having British accents for no good reason. So it's like, I'm, uh, I've been assigned to your case, but you're a woman. Yeah, of course I am. Uh, that doesn't mean that I can't, I can't, uh, that, that means I have better attention to detail than you likely do, bloke. My name? Monica Southmouth. <laughs> but you can call me Detective Southmouth. First of all, thank you for Southmouth coming up. Thank you for choosing Monica? Don't know. I like it. Yep. Um... I also, I I love accents so much. And I know that technically everybody has an accent to everybody mm -hmm. else kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
I mean, oh God, I can't even start listing my favorites. Uh, I just love them so many. But as much as I love a British accent, I they would be offended by how I would do it because yours is so such a beautiful sort of thing, and I would just come in and be like, "In it," because I I would have to do one word at a time because I wouldn't know. But I, I would feel not like, want to butcher it because I, I feel love like your so character, much. much like Bert Bird, would just be chewing gum the whole time. In <laughs> that, that's a. Right. Is every character I'm going to do on the show that's not me just going to obsessively chew gum? I'm going to need to get you a just a dedicated acupuncturist for your jaw because I'm worried. I'm worried about what that's going to do. Um, final thought. Uh, Toronto PD destroyed the files. I loved how you were ending like, I guess whoever knew the story had it die with them or whatever. It was really very slick. I, I really appreciated that. Thank you. But yet yeah, to me, it just feels like the only... It feels like there's so many potential motives for murder. Oh, yeah. Clara, you know, if I can't have you, no one have. Husband, yep. no one can. Husband of Clara, uh, you've been cheating on me. You say you're in love with him and not me. Teresa stands to potentially take the, the bulk of the money. He's also, you know, had these affairs their entire marriage. Business associates, this ex-employee. Like, there's so many people with a motive for murder. It just feels to me like it has to be. Oh, yeah. A murder. Yeah, he was not well-liked. No. It could be as simple as one of his past flings yeah. has come back and been like, I can't believe you cast me aside. Yeah. It's just the whoever did it did such a good job. Yeah. That there's no trace of him anywhere. Unless his sisters were right and the police were in on it. That is true. It's always a yeah. possibility, certainly when we're talking about that time period. Oh, I, yeah. Back then, it was probably so much easier to get away with most things. Yeah. And then is, is it also possible that that's what could have led to Gertrude and Warren's deaths? Is it that they were getting too close or they, you know what I mean? Like, sure. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, to me, it just feels like. I don't think that we have enough evidence to begin to concoct a theory about which of those possible people it could have been. Oh, yeah. There's but just too many. I think, I mean, look, typically it's somebody who's close to you. To me, honestly, Teresa, it wouldn't surprise me just given the dynamic there. And she does yeah. stand to benefit from him, him being dead more than anybody. More than anybody. The rest of them, it would basically be a revenge kill. Um, sure. Or if I can't have you, no one can. To me, who has the access to hire a hitman in terms of money? Teresa. Sure. Who stands to benefit the most? Teresa. That would probably be, again, where I would start. That's where Detective Southmouth starts. It's just, oh, God, that name is, that name is hopefully going to stick. Hopefully. And I hope that she becomes like a Larry Bird where British Detective Southmouth source continues to go. Period. Detective outfit. Oh, God, the wigs. <laughs> if I, oh, I have a box back there on the shelf that's labeled wigs now because I have so many wigs. Yep. Prior to this, I had none. And now I have a box full of them. And I am happy about that. 
Yeah. Now, did you have any other thoughts or feelings, theories? Um, oh, I just can't stop thinking. I mean, you're right. There, uh, Not every victim we mention on this show is going to be well-loved. Yep. And, and Ambrose was not. He was in some respects, but was not in others. Yeah. Doesn't mean he deserved to be potentially murdered. No. Uh, I just don't believe that he ran off on his own without taking that money. I think if he had deposited that money and taken out a ton of money or something or transferred it to like a secret account or something, yeah. then I'd be like, oh, yeah, he's off living his best life, whatever. But he's not going to go to suddenly living in like crappy little apartments and like holes in the ground and whatever when he's been used to living a life of luxury. So I truly yeah. think it's just a full on case of he was murdered. And they did a really great job disposing of the body. But to your point, narrowing it down to who, I i mean, God, it could be so many people, but I absolutely think his wife was involved. Yeah. I really do. I think it was like, look, you can have like things on the side, but when you are having this one where she is so open and it's like this public girlfriend, it's embarrassing. Yeah. You're embarrassing yourself. Stop. Yeah. And so I think it was like, you're not going to stop. Finds letters to find out they are still in communication. And then it's like, okay, cool. I'm out. And we don't know. Maybe he told her after getting that money of like, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to, I'm going to go because he was no longer tied to Toronto. He'd right. gotten rid of all of his uh, theaters throughout Ontario, so it's like he could go anywhere. And you're right. Maybe he told Teresa that day, hey, guess what? I'm leaving you for Clara. I'll be home at six. And she was like, I'll be waiting. Yeah, absolutely. We also have to remember there's no forensics then like there is now. So there yep. could be blood spatter. There could be lots of things that we'd never looked. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also what surprises me of when a, a something like this happens at that time frame that it's not just leave the body where it is or mm -hmm. toss the body somewhere. It's like, they're not going to be able to like pick up your DNA or anything. No. So it's just, you could have like, you could have filled him with alcohol and like cracked him in the head and tossed him somewhere and been like, Oh, he went out celebrating that big check he got. Got a little too out of control, but they just somehow managed to make it just no sign of him. Yeah. That is terrifying, but also fascinating. Oh, I agree. I was going to try and come up with who Detective Southmouth's sidekick was, but I couldn't think of one. Is this going to be like a... Sherlock Holmes situation, am I going to be a doctor? Oh, I like that. Maybe you're also my Canadian cousin if you don't want to do the accent. Oh, I just worry about butchering and, and a beautiful accent and insulting so many people. When, look, I'll say it. The, the, the British accent is up there for me. Irish. Yeah. Australian. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I could listen to Antonio Banderas read a fucking recipe card. That man 
<laughs> I think the truth is, is there's not a lot of accents you're not interested in. Like, I think if you kept, if you really thought about it, like Scottish, like, I think you'd get there. I don't think there's one I'd say that I'd be like, oh, not a fan. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Blanche is equal opportunity. And that's nice. The real challenge. And I'm not going to give myself this challenge because I don't have time for it. But to pick which man, one man for every accent. That's my <laughs> favorite. I'm so currently obsessed with Antonio Banderas, I can't stop myself. It's just, yeah, we saw the new Puss in Boots in theaters and his voice in like, in a theater was transformative. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, maybe the duo is Dr. Excuse me. Maybe the duo is Detective Southmouth and Dr. Clam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's. Uh, and then that's where we're know, at. that could be like a recurring bit is that men will be like, don't both of your names mean other words for and it's like you'd like that wouldn't you you'd love it if we could be reduced to only being defined by our vaginas but we're so much more than that this could be the thing that finally gets me an award you know what i mean the idea like i could already see it the idea of this whole fight this argument of like wow just reducing us to a to an organ is just so beneath you. And then it would be like, I'm so sorry. I will call you by your first name. My name is Vagina. <laughs> like, it was just, <laughs> that would make Muffy. me laugh. My name is <laughs> Muffy Southmouth and Vagina Clam. <laughs> I don't know why this is what it is today, but it is because we're on the edge. We're on the cusp of the edge. <laughs> edge of glory hey on that note dear listeners thank you so much for going on what has been easily the most chaotic episode we've done in some time we're yeah. so grateful that you are here if you haven't already give us a follow on instagram facebook and youtube at true crime and cocktails on twitter at not detectives and if you'd like a little bit more of this batshit chicanery then go on over to patreon patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails we have bonus episodes for a month over there we have a live monthly q a we have a poll you can vote in to choose an episode that we cover on this feed of the show once a month so check that out again if you're interested. And the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, TrueCrewMerch.com. Check that out. We're gonna have some. We're gonna have some new additions soon. Uh, Grimace is a daddy. I'm working on uh, again if I can do it without uh, licensing problems. And uh, we got a few. We got a few this week. That uh, just a couple of creeps and detective, <laughs> detective Southmouth. And Dr. Clam might be something that I'll be noodling on. So uh, stay tuned for all of that. Um, Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, murder in the valleys. Ooh, okay, okay. This is also, of course, our December patron uh, pick, patron poll pick. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get into all of that next week. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Mr. Banderas. Good night, Dr.
Dr. Plan.